Words have the ability to empower and to deceive, the power to soothe and to hurt. They can spread important ideas and wrong-headed ones. They can spur people to action for good or ill. Words are incredibly powerful, and people in power, whose words can carry furthest and fastest, have an obligation, a duty, to speak them with precision and wisdom. Hello, and welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast. Happy New Year. 2020 was a year of many challenges and difficult times for all, and we really hope that 2021 brings you new joy, light, and of course, lots of great reading. At Vintage, we are excited to have published US Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's new book, The Truths We Hold, out now in paperback. And today we are sharing a special extract from the audiobook edition. Here's a little bit about the book. The daughter of immigrants and civil rights activists, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris was raised in a Californian community that cared deeply about social justice. As she rose to prominence as a political leader, her experience would become her guiding light as she grappled with an array of complex issues and learned to bring a voice to the voiceless. Now, in The Truths We Hold, Harris reckons with the biggest challenges we face together. Drawing on her hard-won wisdom and insight from her own career and the work of those who have most inspired her, she communicates a vision for shared struggle, shared purpose and shared values as we confront the great work of our day. We really hope you enjoy the first episode of 2021. Settle in for a special extract and join us in learning a little bit more about the vice president-elect. Chapter 10 what I've learned. Early in my career, one of the first cases I tried was a hit-and-run case in Judge Jeffrey Horner's Oakland courtroom. To illustrate my argument, I had printed out a map on a large sheet of paper, which I pinned to an easel with butterfly clips. I needed the map so I could show the jury the driver's path. I don't remember all the details of the case, but I do remember this map because I kept stumbling over north, south, east, and west. To acknowledge my own gaffes, at some point in the proceedings, I cracked a self-deprecating joke before the jury. Not long after, during a break, Judge Horner called me into his chamber. Don't you ever do that again, he said. You figure it out, figure it out. His words stuck with me, along with so many lessons I've absorbed along the way foundational wisdom from my mother, encouragement and guidance from family members, friends, and trusted mentors, and the powerful examples I've witnessed, both good and bad, that have shaped my understanding of what it takes to lead effectively, what it takes to achieve one's objectives, and what we owe to one another in the process. These lessons have been informed by my own life experience and leavened by their application over the course of my career. Today, they find expression in a series of brief phrases, ones my team members hear so often they'll probably laugh when they read this chapter. One year, my team even had blue stress balls made, with no false choices emblazoned in white letters. Of course, it isn't possible to reduce the complexity of leadership to simple slogans, but my team and I rely on these mantras as touchstones and guideposts 
as starting points for policy conversations and as ways to determine whether we're on the right track. I'm sharing them here because they say a lot about my personal philosophy and style, and maybe they will help to shape your thinking in some way, as the wisdom earned by other people has helped shape mine. Test the hypothesis. When I was a kid, I used to accompany my mother to the lab, where she'd give me jobs to do, cleaning test tubes mainly. I think she probably knew early on that I wasn't going to follow her into the sciences. It was the humanities and the arts that spoke to me, even as I was in awe of my mother and her colleagues and their work. But when you're the daughter of a scientist, science has a way of shaping how you think. Our mother used to talk to Maya and me about the scientific method as if it were a way of life. When I'd ask her why something was the way it was, she wasn't content to just give me the answer. She wanted me to formulate my own hypothesis, to use that as a starting point for future investigation, and to challenge my assumptions. This was how she did her work in the lab. The experiments she ran each day were aimed at figuring out whether her ideas would stand after being tested. It was about kicking the tires. She would collect and analyze the data and draw conclusions from that evidence. If the results didn't support the hypothesis, she would reevaluate. Innovation is the pursuit of what can be unburdened by what has been. And we pursue innovation not because we're bored, but because we want to make things faster, more efficient, more effective, more accurate. In science, in medicine, in technology, we embrace the culture of innovation, hypotheses, experiments, and all. We expect mistakes. We just don't want to make the same mistake twice. We expect imperfections. It's basic for us. We've gotten used to the idea that software will need to be tweaked and updated. We don't have any problem with the concept of bug fixes and upgrades. We know that the more we test something, the clearer we'll understand what works and what doesn't, and the better the final product or process will be. But in the realm of public policy, we seem to have trouble embracing innovation. That's in part because when you're running for public office and you stand before the voters, you aren't expected to have a hypothesis. You're expected to have the plan. The problem is, when you roll out any innovation, new policy or plan for the first time, there are likely to be glitches. And because you're in the public eye, those glitches are likely to end up on the front page in bold lettering. When the healthcare.gov website crashed two hours after it launched in 2013, the problem, though temporary, became a stand-in for describing the entire pursuit of affordable healthcare coverage as folly. The point is, when you're in public office, there really is a lot of risk associated with pursuing bold actions. Even so, I believe it is our obligation to do so. It is inherent in the oaths we take. The point of being a public official is to find solutions to problems, especially the most intractable, and to have a vision for the future. I've always said that political capital doesn't gain interest. You have to spend it and be willing to take the hit. You have to be willing to test your hypothesis and find out if your solution works based on metrics and data. 
Blind adherence to tradition should not be the measure of success. Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, California, understands this idea better than just about anyone I know. He became mayor at 26 of a city that had been hammered by the foreclosure crisis and forced into bankruptcy. His city still contends with high poverty and crime, and now rising rents. Tubbs asked a team of researchers to identify novel ways he could fight poverty, and one of the ideas they came back with was a guaranteed income program. The concept is that giving people direct cash payments can help them make ends meet while giving the economy a boost. And that was a hypothesis he was willing to test. The city is putting together a pilot program, beginning in February 2019, in which it will give a random group of 100 residents $500 a month for 18 months to spend however they want. Researchers will check in with the participants regularly during the program, and at the end of that time, the city will have a trove of data that will help the mayor and countless political leaders determine the effectiveness of such a model. Another much-discussed idea for helping the American workforce is to create a jobs guarantee program. Rather than guarantee a base cash payment, a federal jobs guarantee could ensure that anyone who wants to work will have a good-paying job with dignity. It's an idea straight out of President Franklin Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights. Is it possible? Would it work? If it's part of the plan you're running on, you're compelled to say yes. But the better answer is, let's find out. I signed on to legislation in the Senate to create a model program that will help us do just that. One way or another, I am confident that the data that comes from such a program will inform our approach. Go to the scene. There is a small community in Southern California called Miraloma that sits just north of the Santa Ana River at the western edge of Riverside County. It was for a long time a rural community, a place of grape vineyards and dairy farms, a place where people loved to ride horses and to raise their children, away from the smog of industrial Los Angeles. But in the late 1980s, things started to change. The rise of globalization meant that the United States would start importing a lot more goods from around the world, and many of those shipping containers from Asia were ending up at Southern California harbors. So, nearby Riverside County started approving huge warehouse projects and distribution centers into which the trucks would drop off the cargo they picked up at the docks. By the time I was Attorney General, there were approximately 90 such mega-complexes in Miraloma. Life was transformed for the 4,500 families living in Miraloma. Farms were dug up and paved over. Traffic became unbearable. The quiet, rural community was swallowed up by an industrial warehousing district, and the air turned toxic. Every day, trucks made more than 15,000 trips on Miraloma's main roads, bringing with them soot and other particulate matter. Soon, Miraloma had one of the highest rates of diesel pollution in the state, well beyond state and federal air quality standards. 
Researchers at the University of Southern California conducted a study that found that pollution was linked to poor lung development and other serious illnesses in myeloma children. The Federal Environmental Protection Agency had already expressed its own concerns about health dangers associated with such filthy air. But things were only getting worse. The circumstances of Miraloma were brought to my attention when I learned that the county had approved another complex of warehouses which would facilitate another 1,500 truck trips through Miraloma every day. Residents sued to stop it, arguing the county had failed to take the health concerns seriously and hadn't done the work to mitigate the harm this would cause to a population already experiencing dangerous health impacts. They argued that the county had failed to follow state standards meant to protect communities like theirs. After reviewing the documents, I agreed. I want to join the lawsuit, I told my team. Let's show those families the state has their back. That could have been the end of it. I was confident that with state resources behind them, the community would have what it needed to prevail. But taking action wasn't enough. Understanding the circumstances, strictly through the lens of briefing documents and discussions with lawyers, wasn't enough. I wanted to go to the scene. As we approached Miraloma, I could see a towering mass of haze and smog enveloping the community and the surrounding areas. The sun shone through, but with a gray, refracted tint as the toxic cloud settled in. When I got out of the car, the pollution stung my eyes. I could taste it in the air. I could wipe the dust and soot off surfaces with my fingers. I went into a small meeting room where members of the community had gathered to tell me their stories. One person told me that every day, when the wind changes, he started breathing the fumes. Another told me it's not safe for children to play outside. More than half the households had children under 18, and they were stuck indoors. A soft-spoken woman told me that she was glad I was there because they had been fighting for a long time, and no one ever seemed to listen. One man told me that they have to wash the soot off their driveways and clean their clotheslines before they hang any clothes. He worried about the trees in his backyard, which had stopped bearing fruit and were dying and he expressed his concern for people in the community who were suffering from higher rates of cancer, asthma, and heart disease. At first, that was all he said. But when the microphone came back to him, the group encouraged him to tell the more personal story that had brought him to the meeting. It's hard for me to talk about it, but, I mean, I'll do it to help this community. Through tears, he began. I had a daughter, and she died before she was 15 years old. And instead of planning for her 15th birthday, I was planning for her funeral. She died of lung cancer. Sometimes it's hard for me to talk about it, but if this can help, I'm just telling my story. Well, it did help. The fight against the county would take place in courtrooms and conference rooms, and we would be not just the voice, but the vessel through which the community's story would be told. To really understand the pain that a community is coping with, it's not enough to imagine what it must be like. Smart policies cannot be created in an ivory tower, and arguments aren't won by facts alone. 
What matters just as much is being there whenever possible. In person, eyes and ears wide open, talking to the folks living closest to the challenge. It mattered that we were there to hear this anguished father's story and the stories of other families in Mariloma. It mattered when I visited soldiers in Iraq who were waiting for their next mission and sailors in San Diego preparing to deploy for months on a nuclear submarine. It's one thing to talk about the needs of the military and intelligence communities in a Senate hearing room. It is another to go to the scene and make real, in-person connections with the men and women who are serving. I spent a good deal of time with the troops, talked about their specialties and their training, about the challenges of their work, and how a combination of bravery and duty had led them to this life. But we talked about other things, too. What they missed, what they feared, what they had left behind the sacrifice their families had to make while they were gone. It was personal, and that mattered. It mattered when I visited a Syrian refugee camp in Jordan so that I could get an up-close view of what life was like for the people trapped there, 70% of them women and children. We drove around the encampment, which seemed to stretch endlessly in all directions, each makeshift dwelling representing a family that had fled war and slaughter. I insisted that we get out of the cars. We walked down a street they had nicknamed the Champs-Élysées after the famous shopping street in Paris, and we admired the stalls of clothes and food. At one point, three kids ran up and started talking to me. One of them, a 10-year-old in a blue soccer shirt, took a real liking to me. We took a selfie together, and then he asked, through the translators, if I would come and meet his family. I said, of course, and I followed him through the camp to where they were living. When I got there, a large extended family was there to greet me. They had two small dwellings between them and had created a little courtyard between the two, with a board as an overhang. His grandparents were there, the matriarch and patriarch of the family, and they were incredibly welcoming when I arrived. Will you stay for tea? The grandfather asked me. I'd be honored, I replied. The grandmother went behind the hut, where there was a water spigot and a small gas camp stove. The next thing I knew, she was back, bearing a tray with beautiful glasses, a plate of sweets, and a teapot. We were all sitting there cross-legged, drinking our tea. I was ready to ask all about them, the story of how they got there, the experience of living in the refugee camp, when the grandfather started to speak. Okay, I've invited you into my home. I've given you tea. I have fed you. Now tell me, who are you? Embrace the mundane. Bill Gates is obsessed with fertilizer. I go to meetings where it's a serious topic of conversation, he writes. I read books about its benefits and the problems with overusing it. It's the kind of topic I have to remind myself not to talk about too much at cocktail parties, since most people don't find it as interesting as I do. Why the fascination? He explains that 40% of people on Earth owe their lives to higher crop outputs that were made possible only because of fertilizer. It was the literal fuel for the green revolution. 
which helped lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. What Gates understands is that there is a big difference between announcing a plan to end world hunger and actually ending it. And closing the gap depends on seemingly mundane details like fertilizer and weather patterns and the height of wheat. Politics is a realm where the grand pronouncement often takes the place of the painstaking and detail-oriented work of getting meaningful things done. This isn't to say that there's anything inherently wrong with grand pronouncements. Good leadership requires vision and aspiration. It requires the articulation of bold ideas that move people to action. But it is often the mastery of seemingly unimportant details, the careful execution of the tedious tasks, and the dedicated work done outside of the public eye that makes the changes we seek possible. Embracing the mundane also means making sure that our solutions actually work for the people who need them. When I was Attorney General of California, for example, I went after the for-profit Corinthian colleges. I was concerned about what would happen to students who'd been defrauded. The students had the right either to transfer to another school or get their loan discharged or get their money back. But the paperwork involved was quite complicated. Most students had no idea how to begin or even that they had these options in the first place. We had prevailed in the case, but the students wouldn't actually receive the benefit of the financial relief unless they could navigate the bureaucracy. So my office created a website that walked students step-by-step through this complex process. I wanted to make it as simple as possible for someone to exercise their rights and get actual relief. As we were developing the website, I'd often have our team show it to me, and I'd literally click through the process myself. More than once, I hit a snag. I'd tell them, if I don't understand it, how will the students? That meant the team had to rework the interface and the text. But as frustrating as the exercise might have been, It resulted in a better product. Taking the time to perfect the details made the tool more relevant for the students who needed it. My point is, you have to sweat the small stuff because sometimes it turns out that the small stuff is actually the big stuff. I read a story once about a principal at a St. Louis elementary school who wanted to take on rampant truancy in her school. When she talked to parents, she realized that many of the kids didn't have clean clothes. Either they didn't have access to washing machines, or their families couldn't afford detergent, or the power had been shut off. Students were embarrassed to show up at school in dirty clothes. I think people don't talk about not having clean clothes because it makes you want to cry or go home or run away or something, a student explained. It doesn't feel good. So the principal had a washer and dryer installed at her school, and she invited students who had missed more than 10 days of class to do their laundry on campus. According to City Lab, in the first year of the initiative, more than 90% of the students they tracked boosted their attendance. Words matter. Words have the ability to empower and to deceive, the power to soothe and to hurt. 
They can spread important ideas and wrong-headed ones. They can spur people to action for good or ill. Words are incredibly powerful, and people in power, whose words can carry furthest and fastest, have an obligation, a duty, to speak them with precision and wisdom. Scripture tells us, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. I am keenly aware of the potential power that lives in my words. As someone who represents nearly 40 million people, who seeks to give voice to the voiceless. And so, when I speak, I do so with the knowledge that the words I choose matter. First, what we call things and how we define them shapes how people think about them. Too often, words are used to degrade our impressions of issues or of one another. It's why I insisted on better terminology in my work with sexually exploited youth. It was not right to refer to these individuals as teen prostitutes. They were young people who were being exploited and preyed upon by adults. When I was attorney general, I prosecuted a case against a man who had started a website called YouGotPosted.com, which invited people to upload sexually explicit content featuring their former sexual partners. The man who ran the website would then demand payment from those who had been exploited in exchange for removing the images. In the press and in common parlance, the act of posting the images was described as revenge porn. In my office, people shorthanded the case as the revenge porn case. I wasn't having any of that. Revenge is something you inflict on someone who has wronged you. These people hadn't wronged their perpetrators. It wasn't revenge, nor was it pornography. The victims had never intended for the images to be publicly displayed. It was internet-based extortion, plain and simple. So we referred to it as cyber exploitation. I directed my team that we were not going to use the term revenge porn. I encouraged the media not to use the term either. And I did so for one fundamental reason. Words matter. Second, I choose to speak truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it leaves people feeling uneasy. When you speak truth, people won't always walk away feeling good, and sometimes you won't feel so great about the reaction you receive. But at least all parties will walk away knowing it was an honest conversation. And that's not to say all truth is uncomfortable or that the intention is to cause discomfort. Many truths are incredibly hopeful. I am simply saying that the job of an elected official is not to sing a lullaby and soothe the country into a sense of complacency. The job is to speak truth, even in a moment that does not welcome or invite its utterance. Show the math. Many of us remember taking math tests in grade school where it wasn't enough to simply answer a question. That way your teacher could see how your logic unfolded, step by step. If you got the solution right, the teacher would know that you hadn't just made a lucky guess. And if you got it wrong, she could see exactly where and why and help you correct your mistake. Showing the math is an approach that I've embraced throughout my career. In part, it's a methodology that helps me and my team test the logic of our own proposals and solutions. 
When we force ourselves to lay out our assumptions, we often find that there are certain parts of our arguments that assume things they shouldn't. So we go back and revisit them. We revise them. We dive deeper so that when we are ready to put forth a proposal, we can be confident in its soundness. At the same time, I think leaders who are asking for the public's trust have a responsibility to show the math, too. We can't make other people's decisions for them, but we have to be able to show how we reached ours. That's why, when I taught young lawyers how to put together a closing argument, I would remind them that it wasn't enough to get up in front of the jury and just tell them, you must find eight. Their job was to get up there and show the jury that two plus two plus two plus two leads, categorically, to eight. I tell them to break down every element, explain the logic of their argument, show the jury how they reached their conclusion. When you show people the math, you give them the tools to decide whether they agree with the solution. And even if they don't agree with everything, they may find that they agree with you most of the way, a kind of policy-making partial credit that can form the basis for constructive collaboration. No one should have to fight alone. In the spring of 1966, Cesar Chavez led a 340-mile march of Latinx and Filipino farm workers from California's Central Valley to its state capital in an effort to spur action and direct the country's eyes at the unconscionable ways that farm workers were being treated. That summer, the United Farm Workers was formed and under Chavez's leadership, it would become one of the most important civil rights and labor rights organizations in the country. At the same time, 2,000 miles away, Martin Luther King Jr. was leading the Chicago Freedom Movement. Through speeches and rallies and marches and meetings, he demanded everything from the end of housing discrimination to the need for high-quality education for all. In September 1966, King sent Chavez a telegram. He wrote about the many fronts on which the battle for equality must be fought. In urban slums, in the sweatshops, of the factories and fields, our separate struggles are really one, a struggle for freedom, for dignity, and for humanity. That is the sentiment I believe we must all embrace. There are so many ongoing struggles in this country against racism and sexism, against discrimination based on religion, national origin, and sexual orientation. Each of these struggles is unique. Each deserves its own attention and effort. And it would be wrong to suggest that the differences don't matter, or that one solution or one fight will alone solve them all. But at the same time, we should embrace the point that King made to Chavez that what these struggles have in common is the pursuit of freedom, of basic human dignity. Black Lives Matter can't just be a rallying call for black people, but a banner under which all decent people will stand. The Me Too movement cannot make lasting structural changes for women in the workplace unless the effort is joined by men. Victories by one group can lead to victories for others in the courts, and in society as a whole. None of us, none of us, should have to fight alone.
And if we are lucky enough to be in a position of power, if our voice and our actions can mobilize change, don't we have a special obligation? Being an ally can't just be about nodding when someone says something we agree with, important as that is. It must also be about action. It's our job to stand up for those who are not at the table where life-altering decisions are made. Not just those people who look like us, not just those who need what we need, not just those who have gained an audience with us. Our duty is to improve the human condition in every way we can for everyone who needs it. We hope you enjoyed that special extract from The Truths We Hold by Kamala Harris. You can find out more about the book in the episode description. We are curious to know what are your reading goals for this year? Let us know by tagging us at Vintage Books on Twitter or Instagram. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Keep reading boldly, thinking differently, and until next time.